Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Ask that God would uh, bless this time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, we do lift up Jedediah to you, and God, we thank you that you have created him, and we pray for a healing in his life, Lord, that you would touch him, that you would raise him up, God, and minister to him. Lord, we lift up Andrew and Leah, his parents, pray that you give them comfort and peace. Lord, as the family goes to Philadelphia, would you provide for all of their needs? Uh, Lord, would there be real breakthroughs? And we just pray for a healthy recovery in Jedediah's life. As we spend time in your word, God, I pray that you'd give us energy, or that you'd give us focus. Holy Spirit, that you would come and meet with us and lead us through this chapter. So God, would you minister to our hearts, especially in this area of marriage and also singleness. In Jesus' name, amen. If you caught the news today, did you guys hear the big article today? Donald Trump is running for president. <laughs> it's quite a news story. I'm not going to make a lot of political statements this evening, but if you are looking to the political system for answers, well, now is a good time to look in other places for answers. <laughs> I, I was thinking about this afternoon, where, where do you go to try to find answers in your life, especially when it comes to the issues of marriage and singleness? I mean, where are you going to go? Are you going to go to Google News and look up articles on marriage and articles on singleness and see what you come up with? Or are you going to go to Starbucks and open up a conversation and try to find good, good advice? If you pooled all of your friends and you got friends together, what, what would you find out? And I think I'm reminded of how important it is to go to God's word to get the wisdom that we so desperately need uh, in life. And so what we're going to find in this chapter are three topics that are dealt with. We're going to see marriage is dealt with, divorce and singleness. So there's something here for everyone. All three topics will be dealt with in pretty good detail. If you remember the end of chapter 6, if you'll look with me at the end of chapter 6, if you missed last week's study, you can go on the church's website and listen to it or, or download it. But the end of chapter 6 said this, verse 18, flee sexual immorality, every sin that a man does outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this sets the table for the next several chapters, to glorify God in your body and the topics that, that are dealt with. So naturally, after Paul has brought up what sexual sin is, now he's going to describe the proper use of sexual intimacy, how it's to be used inside of the commitment of marriage. So if you're taking notes, we'll break down this chapter in an outline. The first nine verses, and I'll refer this as we go as well, is marriage and intimacy. Marriage and intimacy, verses 1 through 9. And then marriage and divorce, verses 10 through 24, marriage and divorce. And then verses 25 through 40 is marriage and ministry, and that's where the topic of singleness really comes in. I think tonight's going to be quite an adventure. I hope that you're going to be blessed and glad you came. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So you can close your Bibles. We're done for tonight. That's it. 
<laughs> so Paul gets this letter from the church of Corinth. And apparently one of the questions was intimacy inside of marriage and how important it is. And should a man touch, touch a woman and their understanding of sexual intimacy inside of marriage and seeing it in its proper perspective. And so Paul says, well, my response is it's good for a man to not touch a woman at all. And thankfully there's verse two. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So because of sexual immorality, because it would be too difficult to remain pure and to fulfill this command that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, God has designed marriage. And because of this, a man is to have his wife. A woman is to have her husband. The marriage bed is honorable. This is the place for sexual intimacy. Verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So several things here about sexual intimacy, and the first is it's for mutual edification. Mutual edification, that's what verse three and verse four are teaching us and understanding. So we need to get the world's concept of intimacy out of our minds, and we're to get God's understanding of intimacy into our hearts and our minds. And what's very clear here is that there is to be healthy sexual intimacy inside of a marriage. You should render unto your husband the affection, and husbands should render unto their wives the, the affection. This is God's purpose, and this is God's design. And you've heard me mention before, if you've come here for a while, how Satan loves to destroy sexual intimacy. Before you're married, he tries to get you into bed before that marriage commitment. But then once you're married, he does everything to keep you out of bed with, with your spouse. And so I think it's important, husbands and wives, and I'm speaking to husbands and wives, that you see sexual intimacy as an important aspect of your relationship and desire to keep it healthy. And then this is quite a statement in verse three and four to the point where your body doesn't belong anymore to you, it belongs to your husband. And husbands, your wife doesn't, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your wife. And forgive me, I, would, I don't like talking about this in front of all of you, so I'm already <laughs> blushing, but we are committed to verse by verse study, so. I'm going to get through it one way or the other. It's quite a statement though, isn't it? That your, your body doesn't belong to yourself, it now belongs to, to your spouse. And the heart of verse three and four is this, and the intent is this desire to build up your spouse with your body, saying mutual edification. And sexual intimacy from God's design is best when we're not selfish. When we're not thinking about ourselves, but we're thinking about our spouse, and how do I build up my spouse? Now, I'm going to go a little bit further than you may want me to, and that's pretty soon you'll start blushing, okay? <laughs> so husbands could take verses three and four and kind of like throw it down on their wife, like this is your duty, you, you have to have sex with me, the Bible's telling you, and here you go. And good luck for you guys, that's all I got to say, right? That, that's not the heart and the intent <laughs> in which that this 
is written. So I want to look at really quickly how men and women are, are wired and how we are to give affection due to each other. Is This may be a huge surprise to everyone, but what's the number one need of a man? Sex. What's the number two need of a man? Sex. <laughs> it's a recreational partner. Is And that doesn't have anything to do with sex. That's entering into recreation. So what do you think the number one need of a, a woman is? Not sex. <laughs> the number one need of a woman is affection. Now guys, I have to define affection for you. It's physical touch not leading to sex. Like, well, what good is that? You know, what, what's, what's the purpose in, in that? It, it's physical touch that's not climbing up the ladder to try to try to get somewhere. It's holding the hand. It's giving a hug in the morning, good morning, a kiss on, on the cheek. It's, it's acknowledging their presence through physical touch. And so that's the number one need of a woman. And then the number two need of a woman is conversation. And there's more needs that go after that. So husbands, if you desire to have healthy sexual intimacy with your wife, it would be wise for us to try to meet their needs in affection and conversation. Now, all of this is going to blow up if you have an attitude that says, well, you're not meeting my needs, so I'm not meeting your needs. So you're not meeting my needs, so I'm not meeting your needs. And all of a sudden, you are nowhere close to verse 3 and 4. You know what I'm saying? There is nothing happening in the bedroom. Because everybody's like, well, you're not meeting my needs, so I'm not meeting your needs. And this is downward spiral. And it takes somebody in the equation to live according to God's great commandment. God's great commandment. What's that? Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't first and foremost how to do with your spouse. It has to do with the Lord. It goes back to chapter six. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I've been bought with a price. My life doesn't belong to me. God is now calling me to serve my spouse, so how do I best serve them? It's mutual edification. How do I get my attention off of myself and my needs and my attention upon their needs and seek to serve them and then out of two people that are in love with the Lord, that are living in mutual edification, then sexual intimacy is going to be what God intends. But don't neglect that sexual intimacy. Don't neglect investing in the relationship. I think that the Lord has created sexual intimacy to be a good barometer of the overall health of the relationship. And what I mean by that is, is if you're getting along and you're not fighting and there's good things that are happening in your relationship, it's going to naturally lead to sexual intimacy. That's the way that, that God designed it. And if you're seeing, you know, the weeks go by and they're turning into months and now it's been six months and now it's been nine months and now it's been a year, God's words gently in your face tonight saying, that's not God's design. That's not what the Lord intended. The Lord desires for there to be healthy sexual intimacy. But then we have to look at the overall scope of a relationship and, and start to play things out and go, okay, where's the health? Are we putting the Lord's first? Are we praying together? Are we reading God's word together? Are we seeking to serve e each other's needs? Are we spending any time together? And I know this is like crazy to men. 
You mean like we got to have spend time with our wives outside of bed? I don't, that's crazy. I mean, I might have to turn off the TV and actually have a conversation with her. I, you know, that's, that's just mind-blowing. Yeah, it is. Spend time together. You've got to have a friendship. Well, I'm going to move on. <laughs> Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A couple more lessons about sexual intimacy is that if there is going to be abstinence, it should be agreed, mutually agreed. Just like there is mutual edification, the focus is on the other person. If there's gonna be a time where you say we're not gonna be sexually intimate together, it should be for an agreed period of time where both are consenting for the purpose of fasting and for, for prayer. And the reason that it shouldn't be too long is for protection. So we have edification, agreement, and protection, lest Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan knows our weaknesses. He, he knows that this is an issue of sexual sin in our lives and the lack of self-control and so one of the reasons you want there to be healthy sexual intimacy in your relationship with your spouse is you're protecting each other. You're protecting each other from outside temptation that Satan would want to bring our way. In verse 6, but, this I, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. So what is Paul tying this back to? He's tying it back to his suggestion of taking a time out of intimacy for fasting and prayer saying this isn't a command. You don't have to take time out from sexual intimacy, but it's something that if fits and you desire to do, he's saying I'm giving this as a concession, not as a commandment. In verse seven, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So some may be feeling left out after this conversation of sexual intimacy. You're single and you're going, where does that leave me? And Paul says, well, it leaves you in good company because the apostle Paul was single as well. And he says, I wish that you were all like me, that you were all, all single. And he'll go on later in this chapter to teach about how singleness can be used for the glory of God. He tells us here that singleness isn't for everyone. In verse seven, everyone has their, their own gift. He also tells us that if you can't exercise self-control, if you can't see yourself being sexually pure uh, inside of singleness, then it would be good to be married so that you're not burning with, with passion. So from verse 10 to verse 24, he deals with this issue of divorce. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, one of the things to understand here is why is just the wife addressed and not the husband? Do you see that in verse 10 and 11? It says a wife is to not depart uh, from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. This applies both ways, as we see at the end of verse 11, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So, so both are included, the husband and the wife. This is God's design. Again, we're looking at 
what God's intent, where do we find wisdom on relationships from the Lord, and he's saying don't divorce. And several times throughout scripture, God says very clearly that he doesn't desire for us to be divorced, and it's because he loves us. How do you pull apart one flesh? It's extremely painful, isn't it? And it's extremely difficult. Why does God say that he hates divorce? Is it because he's this angry, vengeful God that's like, you know, I'm just going to make him feel it? No, he's a God of love, and he knows what's best for us. Those are certain things that you hate in the lives of your children, certain influences that come into your life. And you say, I hate that, right? I hate that when, when that happens. It's because you love them. And that's the heart of God. That, and that's why he, he hates divorce, because he sees the damage and the difficulty that he does. So here's where the conflict comes in, is our flesh comes in, and then our culture comes in, and we start to feel like, man, divorce would be a great option, instead of what God's word has to say. And I don't think our culture does an accurate job of depicting the pain of divorce. You know, how does culture depict divorce? Well, you're not happy in your relationship? Just get a divorce, and things will be better. It's time for you to pursue what you want and what you desire, and it's a death trap, isn't it? It's living for the Lord that that brings life. And I'm sure some of you are at that crossroads tonight. You're, You're in a very difficult marriage, and the road ahead seems impossible, and the road of divorce seems very possible. God can restore, he can reconcile, he can resurrect broken relationship. And as much as depends on you, on your part to say, you know what, I'm going to fight for this marriage. I'm going to be committed to, to this marriage and seeing it through. And I want to try to give you kind of the full scope of, of this issue, because now a lot of questions come in your mind. Is Jesus, he laid out for us in his teachings about, about divorce, and he said the reason that there's divorce is hardness of heart. People's hearts get so hard that eventually they divorce. Pray for a soft heart for your spouse. Pray for a soft heart towards the Lord. (laughs) That was an amen right there. Thank you. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Boom. And then Jesus goes on to say that except for sexual immorality, that's the one time that God gives us this biblical allowance for divorce. But even when there's sexual immorality, it's not God's heart that there would be divorce. Obviously, if there's not repentance, a marriage can't continue in a state of sexual immorality. You're not expected to to share your spouse. And if someone continues in sexual immorality, they're making it pretty clear. But we've seen God inside of this church do great works of restoration, even where there's been adultery, when there's been willing hearts for repentance. Divorce is never an easier option. It's always filled with pain and heartbreak. In verse 12, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And if a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. The question here is, what if I have an unbelieving spouse? Should I, should I divorce them? This has a, a biblical background. If you look in Ezra chapter 10, the children of Israel, when they came back into the promised land, they started to marry unbelievers. And Ezra comes in and he says, this has to stop. We're having divorces. And he starts issuing them to deal, deal with this issue. 
And so if you were coming from a Jewish background and you married an unbeliever and you're reading Ezra 10, it might be fairly natural for you to say, well, they're an unbeliever, so should I divorce them? So you can start to understand why Paul is having to clear this up. And Paul's saying, no, if you're with an unbeliever and they are willing to live with you, do not divorce them. So a believer should not be the one who is divorcing an unbeliever. And this is the reason why. It gives us several reasons why in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Staying in the marriage because you're the sanctifying influence to the husband and the children. This doesn't mean that you save the wife and children. They still have to make a choice of faith to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, but you're the influence of Jesus Christ in, in that home. One of the very difficult things with divorce is kids get split up, don't they? It's a lot of times it's 50-50, not all the times, but a lot of times it's 50-50. So if you're raising kids and your spouse is an unbeliever and you get divorced, all of a sudden 50% of their time is an unbelieving home. Where if they were still in your home and you're still married and you're still walking with them, you get to be that sanctifying influence in their life 24-7. Now, I know this is not easy. I know this is not easy. I'm sure there's some that are thinking about divorce. I'm sure there's some of you that are married to an unbeliever. Maybe you were an unbeliever when you got married and you got saved and they haven't yet gotten saved. And you're like, oh man, now life is so difficult. They, they hold it against me every time that I go, go to church. Maybe you were a believer, and you were wayward, made a poor choice. You married an unbeliever. You thought, you know, I'll marry him, and I'll lead him to Christ. I'm sure once we're married, I, I can lead him to Christ. And now it's been 15 years, and there's still an unbeliever, and you're tired, and, and you're worn out. And this is, again, where we've got to say, I'm not looking to culture. I'm looking to the Lord and God is asking me to glorify him with my body. This is a way that I do that, is staying in a marriage to an unbeliever. In verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. So, if they want to stay as the unbeliever, you stay. But if they leave, the scripture says, in verse 15, a brother or sister is not in bondage in such a case. Now, I know us as people, I know our flesh, you might be saying, well, I'm gonna make it so miserable that they wanna leave. Yeah, I'm not gonna leave, but I'm just gonna be so mean and so ugly and so awful that they'll leave, and then I'll use the scriptures to say, ah, I get to depart in peace. You know, I get to go, go on in peace. And that's not the heart here. The heart is you wanna be a witness to Jesus Christ. And if they, they choose to leave after you've been a witness to Jesus Christ, then, then God has called us to, to peace. In verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It's, it's a great question. Ponder for a while. Think on that and pray on it for a bit. Who knows? Maybe it has been 15 years. And maybe in 15 more months, they're gonna come to know Christ as their savior. God can do great things. It's headed in one direction or another. Wait, be patient. Don't be the one that files. If someone's gonna leave and file for divorce, let it be that unbeliever. And you'll know that you did everything you could to make your marriage last. In verse 17, 
But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordained in all the churches. We get to this key truth in this passage, to walk in the manner that you're called. Walk in the place that God's called you. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. This is a big deal in a Gentile church, where these Gentile uncircumcised men are getting saved, and like, should I get circumcised? And, you know, that probably wouldn't be a service that was too well attended, right? Okay, we're going to have the circumcision service. Uh, Really? And we go back to the book of Acts, they weren't required to be circumcised. There was no need for them to, to be circumcised. Walk in the manner that they were called. In verse 20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you've been made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while is free is Christ's slave. Now, church, this is intense, what Paul's saying here. He's saying, if you're a slave and you've gotten saved, then remain in that calling and glorify God in that position. And if you have the opportunity to be made free, absolutely, take it and go for it. But you can live out your Christian life right in that place of slavery. This is not God condoning slavery. This is not God saying that he's okay with slavery, but this is God speaking to people that found them in themselves in this current condition, and what do they do? How do they respond? And says, well, if you have an opportunity to be free, by all means, take it. But if not, remain where God has called you and be a witness right where he was called you. And all of a sudden, we start to see how deep it is to live for the glory of God. See, this isn't just a matter of suggestion. You say, well, I'm in a difficult marriage and I'm married to a knucklehead. I want out. God says, live for the glory of God and do everything that you can to serve Christ in the midst of that difficult marriage. I'm married to an unbeliever. I want out. God says, live to the glory of God. I mean, this is very tough. It would be very tough to look in the eyes of a slave and say, glorify God in your present condition. And if you get an opportunity to be free, go free. But I know what you're going through as a slave and glorify God in that present condition. It's intense. It takes living for the glory of God to a whole nother level in our understanding. And I think it's found in verse 22. And it's saying, you know, he who is called in the Lord while slave, he's the Lord's free man. So in life, he may be someone's slave, but we know in the Lord he's free. And God has him in that place of freedom. But if you're a free man, you're Christ's slave. So he's saying, we're in that place of of serving Christ. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So here's God's heart about slavery is because Christ bought us with a price. He's to be our master. So we should not ever sell ourselves as slaves. No one should ever have a slave. I think that our own personal history as a country, that there were Christians that used the Bible to support slavery, it's, it just breaks my heart. I think that never should have been done. That was never, never God's heart. It's a misuse of, of God's name. It's not that God is condoning slavery at all. In verse 24, here's the application. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. Where has God put you in life? 
Are you married? Then don't seek to be unmarried. (laughs) Are you single? Don't seek to be married. Are you a parent? Don't seek to not be a parent. (laughs) You know? Are you working and are you employed? Man, apply yourself in the job that God is giving you right in that place and say, this is my state. This is where God has placed me and so I am going to blossom where God has planted me. Do you know what the most difficult days for me are personally? When I'm wrestling with where God has put me and what he's asked me to do. You know, when I get all grumpy about having to get up early in the morning with the kids. And I start getting selfish and, oh, it's, it's six in the morning. You know, and inside I'm just grouchy, right? Well, I'm not being content with the state that God's given me. When I wake up with the perspective of going, wow, Lord, thank you for four healthy kids. Thank you for this one that always gets up early in this special time that I get to spend with him every day. You know, it's it's a much different perspective. But I can go through the whole day just grumbling and complaining about my state in life. You're gonna get no traction if you stay in that place of grumbling and complaining. I hate this and I hate that and I hate this spouse and I can't believe he always wants to have sex. You know, I can't believe she always wants to talk. I'm so tired. I don't want to talk. You know, it's like, how was your day? Fine. You know, and it's like, (laughs) as long as we stay in that place of grumbling and complaining, it's going to be a long road. But we get our eyes on the Lord and we say, God, you gave your life for me. I want to glorify you with my body. And then true joy begins to enter into our hearts and lives and remain in that state in which we're called. So we'll end the chapter tonight on marriage and ministry. Marriage and intimacy, marriage and divorce, marriage and ministry, and encompasses the life of singleness. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. If you're a student of the New Testament and especially of Paul's letters of his epistles, you'll find that this language is very interesting from the Apostle Paul. He's really saying, I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you my advice. This is what I've seen in life where the rest of of his letters, and he'll even say it through this chapter, he's saying this is the command of the Lord. This is the, the command of the Lord. So for him to say in verse 25, I have no command from the Lord, yeah, I'm giving you my judgment. This is what I, I've seen, and I think you can count me trustworthy. I would think Paul's trustworthy, don't you? Verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. That is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So again, that importance of remaining where you are called. Don't don't seek a divorce. Don't seek to be loosed to the one that you've made a lifelong commitment to, a vow before God. Cut that line of thinking off in your mind. Don't entertain that idea of, of divorce. If you're single, don't put all of this energy into seeking a spouse. Put your energy in seeking the Lord. Put your energy in being content in him and let God take care of whether or not he wants you to be married, whether or not he wants you to to have a spouse. I often think of Adam in in the Garden of Eden. He became aware of his need, right? God had him name all the animals. There's male and female. And what if at that point he would have sought a spouse for himself? He would have very literally ended up with 
Mrs. Gorilla, right? Or Mrs. Mountain Lion. Do you want to be married to Mrs. Gorilla or Mrs. Lion? Go seek for yourself a spouse. You might find exactly what you're looking for. Trust the Lord. I'm seeking the Lord. I'm content in the Lord. Don't make it your number one mission to be married and, and find a spouse. In verse 28, but even if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned because such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. And all I can say is, wow, thanks, Paul. <laughs> you know, he's like, man, marriage is going to be tough. And I'd spare you guys all that hard work. So let's go on to verse 29. No, <laughs> I think what Paul's saying here, as we'll continue to read, is not difficulties in marriage, that inherent difficulties in marriage, but the fact that as we have families, that there's a level of in energy that goes into our families that we would have to give to the kingdom, that if you're single, that you don't have to put that investment into your marriage, you can pour that into a different aspect of the kingdom. In verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they have none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world and not misusing it from the form of this world is passing away. Wow, that's a strong message. The time is short. And because the time is short, what Paul is saying is don't get so focused on the temporal things that you lose sight of the eternal things. So a marriage is not to exist just for itself. If that's our idea of marriage is I, I've got my spouse and everything's good with us and we never look outward, that's never what God designed. He designed a lot of intentional relationship between the husband and wife so that then as a unit we could reach out with the love of Jesus Christ. The whole idea of marriage is so that Christ in the church could be seen and Paul's saying here, hey, don't get so caught up in your marriage that you forget to seek first the kingdom of God. Now this verse is not a justification for a Christian to not invest in their marriage. You say, well, I read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 and it said, you know, to just act like you're not married. So I'm at the church all the time and I'm doing all this kingdom stuff and I'm never around and nope, that's not it at all. It's investing in your marriage for the purpose of that bringing God's glory. It's being other-centered even in, in your marriage. Does that make sense? And then it goes on to challenge us in a couple lines of thinking and it says, if you weep, you, you shouldn't be as, as one who, who wept. If you rejoice, as one who, who doesn't rejoice. For those who buy their, their possessions, don't get caught up in it at all. For, for those who use this world but not misusing it because it's simply passing away. I was challenged by this as I was studying it and praying it through, as God wants to be glorified in my grief. I don't think I've ever really thought that through, that that's really hit me. He's saying, if you're weeping, don't be as somebody who weeps. Why? Because there's eternity. So even in my grief, I have to acknowledge God's allowing this pain for a reason for him to be glorified. And I'm not saying that we don't grieve. 
I'm not saying that we start walking around like pretend people, but we start to, to grasp, okay, God, you've got a bigger mission in mind, like Jason was sharing. You're, you're concerned about holiness, not happiness. You're concerned about people going to heaven. You're not just concerned about my present comfort. So how do I reflect you even in the midst of this grief? But it's so easy just to get caught up in all of the grief that we forget that. I forget that. I, I've not really thought that through to the level that I need to in my own life. And the same way with joy. You know, am I getting so wrapped up in something here in this world that I'm not glorifying God? I need to glorify God in my joy. How in my joy do I take people back to eternity? Oh, this is a beautiful sunset, but it's nothing compared to heaven. This is a great game. The Cavaliers lost once again, and the Golden State Warriors won this NBA Finals for the first time in 40 years. Can you imagine the kind of competition that we're going to have in heaven being glorified? See, there's a way to take that joy back to the Lord, back to eternity, and remember its purpose. A possession, the same way with a possession, to allow that possession, that home, to not be something that we worship, but something that we glorify God in. Do you worship your marriage? Do you worship your spouse? Have you idolized your spouse to the point where it's really all about your spouse and it's not seeking the Lord together? It's not together existing for God's glory. It's a challenge. It's a good challenge that God gives to us. In verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who's unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. I'm just gonna keep teaching that to my three daughters over and over again. Just have them memorize that one, you know. I'm just joking. But. but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. So if you're single, part of the way that you can enjoy where you're at and not see as what God has called you to is somehow being less is you're freed up without distraction to serve the Lord. And that's what we find in the next few verses. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin, the unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what, but <clears throat> for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. How do you view your singleness if you're single? Got a thumbs up from Steve. Steve's okay with it. The rest of you may be going, eh, don't really like my singleness. Have you ever seen your singleness as a gift from God that you can, oh, good. We got some enthusiastic singles. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, maybe you're a little less than enthusiastic to be able to take this verse to heart and say, you know what? Lord, I do have a desire to be married. That's a good thing. You've said that in your word. And so I'm going to put that in your hands. But I'm going to seek to fulfill what 1 Corinthians 7 teaches. Let's finish out the chapter. But if any man thinks he's behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He doesn't sin. Let them marry. Again, if there's passion... There's a need for marriage. By all means, be married. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his will, 
and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin does well. So then he who gives in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Pretty clear how Paul feels there. He's, he, Paul really enjoys the value of, of singleness in, in his life, wants to encourage others to serve God in that way. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Again, God's heart for lasting marriage. But she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment, and I think I also have the spirit of God in this. So what can be learned about this chapter? I don't know. Have a great night. (laughs) I think there's several things to be learned. Is be committed to sexual intimacy in your marriage. So as you men are thinking amen in your heart, what that also means is you need to give your wife the affection, that's do her, in conversation and affection, but be committed to that sexual intimacy in your marriage. God's design is for a marriage to last. Be committed to your marriage. Close out in your mind that option of divorce. Could be a word of the Lord for someone tonight that's on that verge of thinking about divorce. Everything exists for God's glory. Marriage, grief, joy, possessions, singleness, all of it. It's not about us. It's about God's glory. Use singleness to serve the Lord without distraction. I think if we look at the entirety of scripture, God paints a wonderful, beautiful picture for marriage, but he also paints a wonderful, beautiful picture for singleness as well. And in Christ, we're complete in him. So as we walk in Christ, we're complete in marriage. As we walk in Christ, we're complete in singleness as well. So it really does fit every facet of life. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does fit us. It it fits our needs, Lord, and it's different than what culture would say, but it's so good. And Lord, we embrace your word. We recognize that we need to do it your way. We ask for your blessing on every marriage, every future marriage. Lord, we pray blessing upon all of the singles in our church. And Lord, may they see that wonderful position that you have given them in you and in the body of Christ. Would you bless our time of communion? In Jesus' name, amen.